This is the Pendulum Land Podcast. Welcome, infrastructure junkies, to this show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Pendulum Land Podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry. We are your primary source of news, trends, and developments in eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and the Uniform Relocation Act. I'm Dave Arnold. With me is my co-host, Kristen Bennett. Hello, friends. Today, the Pendulum Land Podcast is all business. No bits, no skits, no over-under push, no Billy Squire, not even a spam recipe. We have several outstanding episodes ready to go that we've pushed back for this fantastic and compelling discussion today. Mid-February, weather in the great state of Texas is usually pleasant and mild. Average highs are in the 60s, average lows in the 40s. It's a land of deserts, rattlesnakes, Gila monsters, and wind turbines. Kids rarely get to play in the snow in Texas. And heck, many people don't even own a winter coat down there. Why would they? They live in Texas. Then, in February 2021, winter storm Uri came along. It started in the Pacific Northwest, moved down into Texas, then up to the Midwestern states, and then the Northeastern United States. Texas was wholly unprepared and was devastated by this great winter storm. For example, in Fort Worth, where the average high temperatures hover around 60 degrees Fahrenheit in February, for example, in Fort Worth, where average high temperatures hover above 60 degrees in mid-February, the temperature did not get above freezing for five consecutive days. Let's take a look at the temperatures down there. February 14th, Valentine's Day, high of 22, low of 7. February 15th, high of 12, low of 2 degrees. February 16th, high of only 18 and a low, get this, a low of negative 2 degrees in Fort Worth, Texas. February 17th, high of 25, low of 17. February 18th, high of 30, low of 20. At peak low temperatures on February 15th, the average temperature across the state of Texas was 12 degrees Fahrenheit, 6 degrees lower than the average temperature in Alaska on the exact same day. What was going on? On February 16th, the day with a high of 18 and a low of negative 2 in Fort Worth, 4.5 million people were without power in Texas. Millions were without power with temperatures not just below freezing, but below zero. In Waco, it stayed below freezing for 203 consecutive hours. That's 53 more than the previous record. There were massive power blackouts across the state. In fact, the largest the United States had seen since the northeastern blackouts in 2003. Four million people were without power as temperatures plunged into the teens and single digits. Millions were without running water or were under a notice to boil their tap water before using it. There were 700 cases of carbon monoxide poisoning in over a three-day period. 
Four people died in Abilene, Texas because of power grid failure. Elderly people froze to death. People idled their cars and garages for heat and electricity and died as a result of CO2 poisoning. In Conroe, Texas, an 11-year-old boy was found dead in his bed. His family had had no power the night before, and the boy and his siblings had huddled together in one bedroom to stay warm. A 60-year-old man was found dead in Abilene, living alone. He had not had power for three days. Now, Kristen, you were right in the middle of all this, weren't you? Growing up in Texas, you always look forward to a snow day, and it's really special if you get a snow day. My kids had not really ever had much of a snow day, so we were super excited when this first started. But I got to tell you, it turned into a nightmare quick. And I was very, very lucky. I I had one pipe freeze, and that's it. No lasting damage. But I have uh, family members who had to pitch a tent in the living room to keep their breath and their body warmth, like keeping them at a livable temperature. I had friends who lost their houses, completely destroyed. Ceilings caved in, walls, floors, busted pipes everywhere. My parents had busted pipes. My brother and his family of five had no running water. Um, People were going out and getting buckets of snow uh, and melting it so that they could flush toilets. It was a disaster. And I'm not talking about, I know one or two people who went through this. Uh, most people I know were affected in some way and, and several friends and uh, family members had their homes completely destroyed. So yeah, completely unprecedented, not a fun snow day, a nightmare. Yeah. Let, let's put this into perspective. Okay. Here's a fun fact. In all of 2020, there were only 75 insurance claims in the state of Texas for burst pipes. Okay. In the entire year? In the entire year. Okay. As of February 2021, there were 29,000 insurance claims for burst pipes. Are you serious? Does that put it into perspective? Seems to. So usually when you have a weather catastrophe, you have lots of damage in kind of a controlled area. You think of like a tornado or even a hurricane. Sure. But with Winter Storm Uri, the entire state was affected. One catastrophe modeling agency known as Karen and Company estimated that insured losses from this winter storm would be around $18 billion. Billion with a B. Billion. And to put that into perspective, Hurricane Harvey had insured losses of about $19 billion. Oh my gosh. Okay. But that doesn't tell the whole story. All in all, damage in Texas from winter storm Uri could exceed $200 billion when you factor in losses of income and economic output. Wow. Winter Storm Uri was by itself a once-in-a-lifetime event, let's, let's hope. I hope so. <laughs> but it was magnified by the massive power outages that the residents of Texas experienced. Why did so many Texans lose power in cold weather? We generally, we lose power because of hurricanes, we lose power because of nor'easters, we lose power because of tornadoes, cold weather. I don't know, here on the East Coast, we don't associate that with the loss of power. Right. Well, we came to learn that unlike the rest of the United States, Texas is on its own power grid, and its own power grid simply could not keep up in this once-in-a-lifetime event. We have with us today Krista Castaneda a litigation attorney in the Texas energy industry. She's going to fill us in on what went wrong down there. But first, we have special thanks for a very special sponsor. Yeah, speaking of insurance, 
I want to tell you about my good friend, Brian Ray. This episode is sponsored in part by Brian Ray State Farm. You may think insurance is insurance, but when something catastrophic happens, or when something minor happens, like you get rear-ended in your vehicle, which just happened to me, you want to know that you are going to be taken care of. Brian Ray and his team serve communities across the state of Texas. What you get when you are with Brian Ray is the personal touch. You know that when something happens, you can make a phone call to Brian Ray and he will take care of the rest. You can reach Brian at www.brianray.com. That's B-R-Y-A-N-R-H-E-A-Y.com. Or you can email him at brian at brianray.com. Again, that's www.brianray.com. B-R-Y-A-N-R-H-E-A-Y.com. We at the Pendulum Land Podcast are thrilled to have with us today Krista Castaneda. She's an attorney in Dallas, Texas. Now, Krista is a go-to lawyer for high-stakes litigation in the energy industry and beyond. Practicing for over 25 years, she's built a solid reputation for adeptly handling technical litigation, often serving as lead trial counsel in high-profile disputes of media interest. Her win for T. Boone Pickens Mesa Petroleum Partners was recognized as the 12th largest verdict in 2016 in the nation by the National Law Journal and earned her a spot as one of NLJ's elite trial lawyers of 2018, as well as induction into Texas Lawyers' Texas Verdicts Hall of Fame. Following this series of high-profile recognitions, Krista was inducted as a fellow of the Texas Bar Foundation in the beginning of 2020. She's a high-powered oil and gas attorney, an engineer, and she was the 2020 Democratic nominee for Texas Railroad Commission. That's the agency overseeing oil and gas and pipelines in the state of Texas. Welcome today, Krista. Hi, Krista. Thank you for joining us. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, we are just uh, thrilled to be able to talk to somebody about all of this craziness in Texas that I think so many people don't really have a grasp about what what happened and why and how and how did we get here. So we have some questions for you. Yeah, and I want to start off by saying I watched this whole thing unfold from the East Coast up in Virginia and was just fascinated and horrified at the same time. And so we've been dying to talk to somebody who can explain this to us. So we really appreciate you joining us today. Sure. I'm happy to do it. I mean, the facts are still evolving, but I'll say what I know and what I think I figured out. Okay. Well, we appreciate that. So first of all, why in the world does Texas have its own power grid and how did that come to be? So people might remember that natural gas got deregulated and electricity got deregulated at some level in the 1970s. And this was kind of an app growth of that whole deregulation. Look, we are actually connected into the grid, but only at very small levels, grid outside of Texas. The main reason we are not connected into the grid outside of Texas has to do with our leaders' desire to allow the price of electricity and the build-out of our electrical systems to be determined by free market principles rather than government planning and government oversight. Now, it's important to note also, though, that we still do have a lot of federal oversight, and in particularly of certain types of energy, particularly nuclear, and that we are connected into the rest of the grid at small capacity levels. But by and large, we stand alone in terms of how we operate the grid and how we charge prices for electricity. 
Well, let's back up one second for for folks like me who aren't um, who don't have the expertise that you do. In simplest layman terms as possible, explain what a power grid is. Like we're talking about Texas has its own grid. What are we talking about here? So it is the overhead lines you see driving down the highway. It is the lines in Texas, everything's above ground. Okay. That's another subject. It is, it is the lines that you see that run to your house, um, connecting you to the electric supply. It is all the way back to the plants that generate the electricity, and it includes all the way back to the sources for the fuel for the generation of that electricity. Um, And in this case, and I think we'll get into in a bit, natural gas. Uh, Our oil fields and our gas fields are a critical part of the electric infrastructure here in Texas. So Um, it It also includes, for example, windmills and solar. Okay, so it seems to me that state boundary lines would be a very natural division between power grids. Is that not the way it is elsewhere? It is not the way it is elsewhere. And here's the key fact. Um, most other states in, in the union can pull from other states' generation capacity. Um, so, you know, if it's really cold in New York, you could perhaps pull power from, uh, you know, a plant in Tennessee, but in Texas, basically, we don't have that ability to pull power from other places, except to a very small degree. Like, I think it's less than 5% of our needs can be supplied by capacity external to the state. That's the great differentiator in terms of what happened here. And we're, so we're on our own. Okay. Well, and well, that, I, that's, I, that's the way you like it down there, right? Oh, the some, Lone Star State. Some yeah. people do. Yes. And I know there's parts of Texas like El Paso is, is on a different grid. Is that right? Maybe parts of the panhandle. So El Paso has the ability to um, generate its own power and distribute its own power. And I believe it's connected more into the New Mexico um, oh. access points than it is to the Texas access points. And interestingly, some of our panhandle is the same way where we produce a lot of natural gas it, it was connected into the oklahoma connection points yeah i think i read that maybe el pa nobody nobody lost power in el paso during this that's so that's right interesting so wh- how long has this been the, the setup for texas have we been on our own grid forever or was this a recent development at least 40 years okay. um, and i think i think when we think back beyond that it's important to note that grids were regional, right? So we might've had South Texas being supplied by one system and Dallas being supplied by another and Houston being supplied by another, and they weren't necessarily connected. The fact that we're connected across Texas, but not to the rest of the grid you know, in the United States, generally speaking, is the development that happened in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Wow. Okay. So- What are the implications and ramifications of this as opposed to being part of that larger grid or connected to those other areas? Well, so let's back up to what happened during the storm. What happened was we needed 70 gigawatts of electricity at peak demand, and we only could supply ourselves about, I've heard numbers from 40 to 50, about half was all we could supply. So when supply doesn't meet demand, and it's a it's a just-in-time system because of the way electric moves, right? Electricity moves. Sure. Then somebody's got to go without. And the somebody's that went without were 4.5 million residential customers. Okay, so 
let's let's pause here. You said at peak times you needed seventy gigawatts of power. Is that more than normal, or is that pretty much what you it, normally it, need? It, it was no, no. It was more than we've ever needed. Okay, even even in the hot summer days. 70 was more than we had ever needed. And I think they were forecasting during this storm, 66, 67, something like that. So it was even above what they had thought was the worst case scenario. And why why is that? Is it because people needed extra electricity or fuel for power to heat their homes? Or what was yes. what, what sparked the increase in demand? We were cold in sub-zero temperatures for more than... I mean, I think we peaked out in North Texas at like 140 hours or something like that. And then, you know, it would rise above 32 for just a few minutes or a few hours and then drop back down. So it, it was a 10 day snap of basically on and off below freezing temperatures for all 254 counties. Okay. And then let's, before we, before we move on and you were able to supply, how much did you say? I've heard from, you know, anywhere from, I'd say 45 to 50 megawatts. And, so, and how, how does that compare to what you're normally able to supply? Oh, we're normally in the 60s for sure. Okay. So you had increased requirements, increased demand and decreased supply. You've explained yes. why you had increased demand. What was the reason for the decreased supply? All right. The number one reason, despite all the things you might have read or heard, was that natural gas was not getting to the power generation plants that depend on natural gas in sufficient quantities or at sufficient pressures to actually generate electricity. And that was a huge part of our capacity was the electricity that came from natural gas plants. And why couldn't natural gas get there? Because natural gas requires electricity to pump and to compress to get it to the pressures and make it flow down the pipelines. It was an endless loop of failure. Um, and oh. and we'll get into this in a minute about maybe what the fixes are, but that is the number one reason that four and a half million Texans were in the dark. Wow. Well, and you know, I remember before this, before the storm, I mean, we, we kind of knew this was coming. Pete Delkus told us it was coming. Yes. So Pete Delkus is a well-known uh, weatherman in our, okay. in our neck of the woods. Um, so we, we knew this was coming. Um, and I remember hearing, you know, there may be some rolling blackouts. And so people were kind of prepared. Maybe they had a bathtub full of water or some candles handy. Rolling blackouts is not what happened though. It wasn't rolling blackouts. Rolling blackouts was not what happened. In the early morning hours of Monday, February 15th, the ERCOT grid operator, which is basically, it's the name for our grid, and it's it serves as like, like an air traffic controller, you know, switching power on and off in various places uh, and, and monitoring capacity. They shut down, they, that's when they shut off most people's power because we were four minutes and 37 seconds away from total grid collapse. And if what? you want, I'll explain what that means. Yeah. So electricity has to be supplied at the moment that it's needed. We don't have large scale batteries or capacitors that can say we can save some up and use it later. So that means that when you flip the light switch in your house, those electrons have got to be generated, you know, somewhere back up the system pretty much as you're calling on them. All right. So supply is at, at 
40 to 45 because everything's dropping offline precipitously, precipitously and demand is at 70 gigawatts. And so what happens when you put the system in that kind of a, a state? Well, maybe you plugged in one too many toasters or blow dryers in your dorm room back in the day and the, all the lights went out, you know, or your, your, you know, your house and all those breakers flip, same thing happens on the entire electric system, right? The grid. And, and, and the other thing is, is that, sorry, I'm an engineer, so I get a little geeky about some of these things, but the electricity had to run at a constant 60 Hertz. Okay. So it's a, it's a wave and it had to be at a constant 60 Hertz. And what happened was because of this supply demand instability, it dropped to 59.3. When that happens, all of these, these um, the equipment that's connected to the system, all of the relays open because they're not set up to deal with that level of electricity supply. And that means that everything has to be reset. I mean, it, it's like breaker stripping in your house. Everything opens up, no electricity is getting through and all of the breakers in the entire state of Texas were gonna need to be reset. And critically, oh and critically, one the nuclear power plant, according to the operator of the nuclear power plant, was mere seconds away from going down. Oh so, my god! So what? What miraculous thing happened at four minutes and thirty-seven seconds to total grid collapse that made it not do that? How did we avoid? They, how did we not get to that point? They put five million Texans in the dark. Okay. They shut. They they just simply. If, if it's it's branches of a tree and they took out a chainsaw and started whacking off huge limbs off that tree. Okay. So they just, they just shut people off. Okay. So and instead that, of that's what restored stability. Okay. So instead of total grid collapse, we just turned off the lights a bunch of places to go. Okay. 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 Yep. Oh, wow. I don't think I realized how incredibly dire that situation was. Y yeah. It, and it, it was really, it was really frightening to listen to the testimony and see the fear in people's faces it, but, when but the he, legislature convened hearings. Here's what I can't get my head around. Okay, I, I know you guys have dealt with hurricanes down in Houston in your part of the state, and we deal with hurricanes regularly here on the coast of Virginia. And back in 2003, Hurricane Isabel was a direct hit where I lived, and we were without power for ten days, no power, no water. But you know, it was September, and nobody was going to die from that. Right. Uh, not not normally. Krista, I can't get my head around this. I checked the temperatures in Fort Worth, Texas during the storm. And for three days in a row, February 14th, 15th, and 16th, the low temperature was single digits. And yep. on the 16th, the low temperature was negative two. And you're telling me that people had no power, not with just sub-freezing temperatures, but sub-zero temperatures in one case, it's temperature in one case. That's exactly correct. You wouldn't believe it. The, having lived through it, I was shocked. I mean, it was like living in a third world country. It, it was unbelievable. Um, you know, nobody had power. People's pipes were frozen. You know, in Texas, we're ready for warm weather. We are not ready for extended cold. And when you turn off the heat, then the pipes freeze. I mean, it, it, it look, we'll, we'll get into the aftermath of this in a minute, but it's, it's a tragedy in addition to a debacle on top of a catastrophe and every other word I can think of to add to that. It's terrifying. Can you imagine if you had an infant at home and the lights go out and it's three degrees outside? 
I, I can't even imagine this. So it was a nightmare, a nightmare. You know, I, and there were there were pictures on Twitter of people with you know icicles hanging down off of their fans because pipes had burst and they had no electricity, and uh, it's really hard to fathom. And I think sometimes when you live in Texas and we get some snow and ice and they cancel school, people from around the country are like, "Oh, Texas, you guys don't know how to drive on snow, or you're, mm-hmm. you know, you guys are weak." And it's like, no, 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 we aren't built for this. Our infrastructure was not built for this. Our homes are not built for this. Our pipes, like the insulation in our homes. Like we're just not built for negative two degrees yeah. for a sustained period of time. And, and but let's let's go back to to your prior point, Krista. So they put five million Texans in the dark to avoid complete shutdown. Yep. What a crazy choice that must have been. So they knew what they were going to have to do to five million people, and I guess they're just like, well, good luck. Hope you got some firewood. It's exactly what happened, and y'all alluded to this a little earlier. You know, nobody told us. They said rolling outages. I'm telling you, there was never a plan for rolling outages after the grid instability. And to the fact that they kept repeating it and didn't correct it, I think is egregious. In fact, had we had a functioning uh, regulatory body or emergency response agency at the state level, the very first thing that should have been said is, we are going down and we're going in the dark because this was knowable. This was it, it's gross negligence in my language as a lawyer. Um, it's gross negligence that the state didn't warn people that people were going into the dark and they needed to fill up their bathtubs with water and they needed to gather supplies and be ready because nobody was ready. Nobody no was one ready. was ready. No, I, I was telling Dave uh, during our introduction, I have a, a cousin and he. They had no electricity. They ended up pitching a tent in the living room because somebody told them, you know, your body heat and your breath can help. And they lost pets. And I mean, they didn't die, but it's unbelievable that in the year 2021, we're like, okay, well, pitch a tent and use your body heat so you don't die in your home. I mean, that's unbelievable to me. And so that raises my next question. Nowadays, most people have an iPhone or a smartphone, and those things can be programmed to broadcast a weather emergency. Yep. You know, Tornado's about to hit down. That that thing will wake you up in the middle of the night and tell you that. Were there any measures no. like that taken? Any no. warning? No. And that's also part of this distributed grid and lack of a regulator to oversee it, is no one took responsibility for those communications. You know, it just boggles the mind. It, re- it really shows how vulnerable we are when we leave everything to chance. God, if it's, it's almost like Hurricane Katrina, you know, where it's coming, it's coming, and nobody seemed to do anything, and then the levees broke. Right. Yep. That's right. how this feels. Wow. That level of a catastrophe for sure. Would this have happened if Texas were not on its own grid? Well, so I talked about the fact that we're only connected for – less than 5% of our capacity needs, our Mm -hmm. demand. So if we had been connected into the rest of the grid, like I I read something like New York is is able to pull like 70% of its capacity needs from the rest of the surrounding states if for some reason something would happen in New York. You know, that's what interconnectedness means is, you know, your neighbors come help out when you get faced with something like this. Now, look, all of the United States was in an extended cold snap. I don't know if anybody's modeled would there have been enough, but I think there certainly would have been far fewer people in the dark for four or five days. When they when they turned the lights out for those five million people, 
Did they know it was going to be for days and days? I, I'm, I'm confident that the people who had to make the decisions about power going out knew it was going to be for days. I'm confident that they knew that they were not doing rolling outages right. because they were just having to lop off whole pieces. And um, we've got too much of the wrong stuff designated as critical infrastructure, which meant that those 5 million people really didn't have a choice because everybody else was designated as critical. But what I don't, th and again, here's another problem with this distributed grid concept. I don't think the people who were making the decisions about who got cut off understood the nature of the reason that people were getting cut off. They only knew that it was going down and they kept hoping, I think, that capacity would be restored, but nobody was telling them the reason it's gone down is because natural gas cannot get gas to generation and that problem is not going to get fixed. Krista, I didn't know that. And you know, I, people didn't know, I didn't think a lot of people didn't know we were, we were on our own power grid. And I, I do want to touch on something you said, the critical areas. And I, I think I've heard a lot about the fact that if you were within such and such distance of a hospital, your lights didn't get turned off. Was it hospitals? Right. And is there, were there other, other structures or, or businesses or uh, was it? Yeah. Hospitals, fire stations, central business districts, mm -hmm. you know, one of the more egregious, you know, displays of lack of planning happened when the Dallas skyline is still all lit up and everybody else is in the dark, right? Oh, you know, that was we it. don't need our pretty lights for those days. Um, we needed for those lights to be turned off and the power to go elsewhere. Yeah. And several people sure were quick to call that. Like what in the yeah. world is downtown Dallas doing with all those lights on right now? Well, I still can't get over the, the no warning to the residents who were going to be put in the dark and had their heat taken away. Was that because of hubris, ignorance, undue optimism? Uh, they wanted to avoid mass panic. Like, why not communicate that out and give people a warning? Do, do you have any theories on that? I do. I First of all, I don't think anybody was in charge of making sure those warnings got distributed. But I also think that no one... And here's the, to me, the great learning from this is no one had the responsibility to think through the critical failures and the critical independence or critical dependence of natural gas and electricity. And so had anybody thought about that in advance, the problem would be clear. I mean, there are, there are hundreds of natural gas producers that can tell you we can't produce if we don't have grid power to our compressors. No, you know, there, there's engineers all throughout that could say that was going to happen. And there's, there's all kinds of people who run these power plants, engineers who could tell you, you know what, if, if we don't get that natural gas, we're not generating electricity, not, not, not a stitch of it, you know? So had anybody been charged with looking at those issues and making sure that our grid was actually reliable, we would have known weeks in advance. As soon as that storm was forecasted, we would have known this is going to happen. That's completely fascinating and terrifying. What do you think, I know this is, uh, we're going to speculate a little bit, but from this point forward, like, what do you think the effects are of this event in Texas? I mean, I'm sure there will be lawsuits. I'm sure we'll, we'll find out more about people who died and damage and insurance claims, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think are the long-term effects here? Well, about $100 billion of wealth just got redistributed. 50 million or 50 billion or more in insurance losses. 
operators are going into bankruptcy or going out of business, we're going to see a cascade of failures. Some 30 or $40 billion of wealth got transferred between companies and will eventually get transferred to Texans as a result of the pricing failures. So there's a whole financial catastrophe on top of the physical catastrophe. And that's not to even mention, you know, the class action lawsuits and death lawsuits and all kinds of things that are going to happen. I mean, lawyers are going to have a field day with this. It's like the Macondo disaster. A hundred billion dollars of wealth redistributed. Uh, explain that. Explain that if you could. Sure. Okay. Well, number one, there's going to be $50 billion of insurance losses. Guess how that gets paid? We all pay more in premiums. So mm-hmm. when the apartment complex fails, it's, it's water system fails and the whole place, you know, gets saturated with pipes that burst, then insurance has to pay that. And then that insurance, if those insurers stay in business in Texas, Texans will pay higher premiums uh, in, in the next coming years. So that's one thing. Another thing, just on the, the business side of things, you know, I didn't work for a week. I, I, I went without income for a week and there are many fellow Texans who did the same. Then when we talk about wealth transfer in the electric system itself, we know that Jerry Jones, who owns the controlling interest in Comstock Resources, a natural gas supplier, made probably hundreds of millions of dollars on the fact that the price of natural gas spiked and that the plants that run on natural gas had to go buy natural gas on the commodities spot market, right? The price spiked by some 60 times. Gas normally trades for under three. It went to 180. Oh my God. Okay. So so the producers were able to charge that much more. Now, then we take CPS, which is the San Antonio generation part of the grid. They lost a billion dollars because they had to go purchase that gas on the spot market. So that's a publicly owned entity. If it survives, it probably is going to have to go through some bankruptcy, but it it's also going to have to charge more to recoup those losses. You can't, you know, operate without paying your bills. Then let's add on top of that, the fact that there is a buy sell price for electricity on the grid between these companies that's set by ERCOT. ERCOT didn't understand why capacity had dropped off so precipitously that Monday morning. So what it did was issue an order raising the maximum price for a megawatt hour of electricity from normally it's in the $75 range to $9,000. And they left that order. So that's the trading price. It's like an artificially established by order price. The clearing price for that electricity was left at that level for four days. And now $16 billion of wealth got transferred between the grid participants because the Public Utility Commission left that price too high for so long. Which is why people are getting bills for thirteen thousand, fifteen thousand well, dollars. Right, right. That's well, what let, not let me ask that reason. Let me ask this question. Because we heard about that. I, I read about people getting ten thousand dollar electric bills from up here in Virginia and it knocked my socks off. I just assumed, you know, they're just making headlines. That's an urban legend. Was that really happening in Texas? Oh, it was real. Really? One, real. One percent of the one of uh, the testimony in the legislature was one percent of retail customers elected to participate in these wholesale power pricing plans. 
So all you do is you pay a middleman, a monthly fee to manage your account, and you pay the same rate that the grid does. And so when it rose by whatever the ratio that 9,000 bears to 75, the bills went that high. So if you normally paid $100 a month, you might be paying 10, 12, $15,000. So is there any relief for that? If you get stuck with a 10, $15,000 energy bill and you're just a middle-class American, is there any relief or, or do you go on a payment plan or do you call up a bankruptcy lawyer? What do you do with that? Well, that's a great question. Unfortunately, a lot of these people were also on automatic pay systems and the money was just sucked out of their accounts. <laughs> yeah. And and the governor issued a stop order for a temporary period of time that kept them from billing for the electricity and also from uh, kicking people off the grid. But now those protections have been left lifted. And I don't know what the I don't know whether the legislature will provide some relief or not, but the gritty is the the provider, the company that allowed this service. That that was the main culprit. It's been sued for, I don't know, trillion dollars or something like that. And it's it's apparently going out of business. Krista, wasn't gritty, I, I believe I remember seeing in the news that gritty was alerting their customers, like you guys better jump ship and find another provider ASAP because we're gonna hit you with these bills. Do you think there they, were people that they got do- out in time? They did try to do that, but most people, there, there was not sufficient number of business days to actually make that transfer because it's not just easy. You know, there's, there's, it's not like you just sign up for a new provider. There has to be a communication between your current provider and the new provider verifying all kinds of stuff. And it just didn't happen fast enough. I, I, I'm, I'm stunned. I mean, the fallout from this, I don't, I, it sounds to me, Crystal, like we don't have any idea what the real fallout is yet. Still oh, gonna it's going to it it's gonna be like Harvey or Katrina or Macondo, where it's going to be going on for two, three years. I mean, we're not, we do not know the extent of this. You're, you're absolutely correct. There are still people who are under boil water or boil water orders and don't have running water. Also, for some reason, our water treatment plants are not critical infrastructure. So they weren't treating water during this storm, which meant everybody was sucking down the supplies, which meant, you know, when you get down to that bottom 10% of the tank or whatever, that's not potable um, unless it's being refreshed with more. And so millions of people were on boil water orders and some people still don't have water as a result of the collapse of the water system. Still, and we're almost a month out from the storm. Yeah. Krista, do you think this was, is this like a once in a lifetime event? I've heard people say that. Or are we, are we subject to this, uh, to a recurrence of this in Texas? Oh, we're absolutely subject to a recurrence of this unless somebody gets off their, you know what, and fixes it. Okay. And I, I'm hoping that that's going to be the legislature, but I'm not sure that the political will exists to be able to do what we need to do. So I, I can talk about this topic for like four hours, but... I'll, I'll, let, let me let you ask your questions. My question is, okay, if this is if we are subject to a recurrence, and it sounds like it's not totally out of the realm of possibility at all, but in fact, it might be probable that this would happen again. What actions need to be taken? Who does what to make this not happen again? What do we need to do? A lot of the talk has been around winterization, because by the way, this wasn't the only time this happened. It happened in 2011. 
for a couple of days when coal-fired power couldn't deliver during winter because coal also has trouble. And there was massive calls for winterization, but they left it voluntary and nobody did it. And the same thing is happening, I think, this cycle. But here's the thing. In order to winterize, it costs companies money. And those companies have to be able to get that money from somewhere. Um, and that somewhere is either higher fees, higher rates, some incentive that's a baseline that allows them to actually invest in their systems. Um, it's kind of like I mentioned at the top, uh, the overhead power lines. Those are also unstable because guess what? They ice up and they fall down. You know, if we buried our power lines, that would ensure electric reliability as well from the attack on the actual lines. But, you know, nobody wants to finance that either. I think at base right now, the exact things that put us in the dark for an extended period of time can and will happen again if we have another storm because no one is overseeing the reliability of the grid in total. No one is doing that. There, there are, the ERCOT was the agency that was charged with, you know, the air traffic control of the grid only manages between generators and transmission lines. So you're uh, telling me there's there's no there's no position in the state of Texas like the power grid commissioner or some somebody at the helm of all of this. There there is the public utility commission, but it doesn't have the authority to tell, for example, the gas producers that supply uh, our capacity to make sure they generate their own power, which by the way, they could have easily done, okay? 30 years ago, natural gas generated its own power. It switched to the electric grid, but you know what? They flare, which is intentionally lighting on fire for no beneficial purpose, and it's against the law, flare enough natural gas that it would power every single residence in the state of Texas continuously. That natural gas should have been turned to electricity at the wellhead and used for their own power needs. And the Railroad Commission will enforce that law. Uh, that blows my I, mind. I mean, you could pick you my job off the floor right you now. You can't make this up. This is compelling. You can't make it up. So dumb question from the cheap seats out here on the East Coast, okay? Can't you fix this whole thing by joining up with another grid? Well, then the, then we get away from Texas's number one principle of government, which is, you know, free markets and low regulation. Small government is, is better than big government. Oh, so the answer right. is absolutely yes, we could fix this problem. And frankly, there's, there's studies that I think show that we would save more money if we did it right. And we certainly wouldn't be in the dark for a week. And we get a lot of companies moving here from California. But I tell you what, number one on their you know, relocation list is going to be, do they have running power and water? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, Krista, anything else, any other insight into what, what needs to be done to move forward? I mean, other than, frankly, it sounds like we're kind of stuck with this for a while, unless some, some minds are changed in Texas. Yeah, I think, I think, look, I think the fixes remain to be seen. I don't know that federal government is going to bail us out, right? There, I mean, that is going to happen. It's already been declared, you know, a disaster zone for most of the state, which allows us to tap federal funds. I think at some point, the federal system is going to say, guess what? If you can't fix your own needs, if you can't stop being rescued all the time, then we can't come in and help you all the time. Um, I mean, I just, somehow, some way, this has got to get addressed and it's gonna take 
probably going to take something like that to actually prompt a change. Well, Krista, I can't thank you enough for your time and your insight today. This has been, I really could, I, my jaw is on the floor. I knew, I knew some of this stuff, but you have blown our minds. Sure have. Um, and thank you for your work on this. For our listeners, uh, Krista recently wrote uh, an opinion piece for the Dallas Morning News that's very insightful as well. Um, but we appreciate you. And I think maybe it might be nice to uh, check in with you in a couple of years and talk about the long-term effects and what's happened since then, if you're interested. Sure. Awesome. It was, it was fun. It was a blast. Thank you so much, Krista. And hopefully our paths will cross in the Metroplex soon. Thanks, Krista. Thank you. I got to tell you, Kristen, that was a fabulous interview. And I really appreciate Krista joining us. And my mind is blown. I cannot believe some of the things that I just heard that I, I, had, I live in Texas. I didn't know some of that. I did not know that's how that all went down. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like there's going to be any sort of change as a result of it. It's kind of, that's a little scary. Might yeah. have nightmares about weather now. Well, we're going to follow this. We're going to follow this, and it may be worthy of a follow-up episode later in the season or maybe even next season. This is a right-of-way concern that affects all citizens of the state of Texas. And she talked about electricity and natural gas and coal. I mean, this this is what we do, man. So your friend, Brian Ray. Yeah. Thanks again to Brian Ray, State Farm, my insurance agent. And if you are looking for one as well, who will offer the personal touch, reach out to Brian Ray. That's www.brianray.com. B-R-Y-A-N-R-H-E-A-Y. And Brian's taken good care of you recently, hasn't he? Sure has. He always does. Well, thanks, thanks for your support of the podcast, Brian. And I also want to thank our presenting sponsor, Pendulum Land Services. You know how right-of-way projects seem to always get delayed or go over budget due to condemnation and relocation issues? Well, Pendulum Land Services has the unique ability to identify and solve potential challenges before they arise. In fact, their projects are managed by experienced attorneys and relocation experts who are also principals of Pendulum Land Services. Check them out at PendulumLand.com. That's PendulumLand.com. Hi, this is Ryan Ainge, author of The 21st Century Body, an essential guide for the new millennium, right-of-way agent in North Carolina with IRWA Chapter 31, and contributor to Right-of-Way Magazine, and you have been listening to the Pendulum Land Podcast. Please do me a favor and like and follow them on all your social media accounts with their handle at Pendulum Land Pod. While you're at it, follow your hosts at Relo Kristen and at Right-of-Way Dave on Twitter.